Over the last few weeks, uh, we've been going through a city, uh, through a series called The Gift Exchange. And through this series, we've been looking at how we exchange our brokenness, our hurt, our pain for the blessings of God. How we exchange our brokenness for his peace, his joy, uh, his healing. Uh, And through this, we focus on his greatest gift, which is Christ Jesus, because all the other gifts that God has bestowed on us, has poured into our life, they all uh, lead towards and funnel through Christ Jesus. If it wasn't for Christ, we would not be able to have our relationship with God. We would not be able to enjoy many of the blessings, many of the gifts of God. And so I want us to, as we kind of wrap up this series, look at God's greatest uh, gift, his greatest blessing, which is salvation. Now, as we think about gifts, um, I, I, I have to confess, I, I love gifts, I love uh, getting gifts, I love giving gifts, but I have a challenge when it comes with gift giving, especially when it comes around the Christmas holidays. Uh, I am not always the best at knowing what to give somebody else. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. Uh, may, maybe uh, each holiday, much like me, you find yourself racking your brain trying to think, what is a good gift for my spouse, for my kids, for my grandkids, for my niece, nephews? What do I need to get someone? Because you want it to be something they appreciate. You want it to be something that's meaningful to them. And we know that not only does do the gifts that we give, do they tell us a lot about the person who's receiving the gift, but it also tells us a lot about the gift giver. If you give a, um, an expensive, extravagant gift, it usually... Uh, it usually points to the, the fact that the gift giver is generous. The gift giver places high value on the person that they're giving that expensive, generous gift to. If it's something special, maybe it's a handmade thing, or maybe it's something that signifies an inside joke between you and that person, it, it usually says that you have a close intimate relationship with that person. Y'all share memories, you share a history, and that that gift kind of tells a lot about that sort of thing. Now, the reason why I bring all that up is because the gift of salvation, the greatest gift that God has ever given us, I believe tells us a lot about who God is and about who we are. I want you to sit and think about that for a moment. Think about what salvation is. Think about what salvation means about the kind of God that we worship. The God that loves us enough that he would send his one and only son to save us, to be in a relationship with us. And what does that say about us as well as people that we need a savior, that we need, that we couldn't fix ourselves, we couldn't fix the mess that we had gotten ourselves into, that we needed God himself to become one of us so that we could be reconciled with God. You see, salvation, I'm convinced, says a lot about who God is and who we are. But here's the problem. A lot of people, not only outside these church walls, but also within the church itself, often have a misunderstanding when they look at this gift of salvation. There are some people who believe that we can earn our salvation, that we can go to church enough times, we can pray enough times, we can tithe enough, we can read our Bible enough, that where we can be good enough, that where we can get into heaven. And when we we distort the gift of salvation that way. It distorts who God is and it distorts who we are. It diminishes God by saying that we can do enough in order to be in a relationship with him. 
and it elevates who we are above what I believe scripture teaches. There's a fundamental misunderstanding when we look at the gift of salvation in that way. But there's also an, another group, uh, another side of uh, the, the continuum that, that people look at salvation as though, well, God does it all. God saves us. There's nothing that we bring to the relationship or to this uh, dynamic of salvation. And so I can just sit back and wait until Jesus comes and God will do all the work. He'll sanctify us. He'll fix the world. And we just sit back and wait. And that sounds maybe a little bit closer to what Maybe some of us believe, but I'm convinced that Scripture teaches otherwise. That not only does God save us, and yes, that is a work that he does, but he saves us to do a work ourselves, that we are to partner with him. Many people who buy into this idea, this view of the gift of salvation, they just go through life almost with a license to sin. I can do whatever I want because God will save me no matter what. I don't have to do anything for him. What we need to understand is if we have a biblical understanding of the gift of salvation, of why Christ came that first Christmas morning and came to this earth and died on that cross for us, then we'll have a better understanding of who we are and, more importantly, who God is. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to hone down on this gift of salvation. I want us to look at what it truly means about us and about God so that when we go into this Christmas season, we'll have crystal clarity when we look at that baby in the nativity and we'll understand truly what that gift really meant. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're turning in God's Word, I'm just going to give you a little uh, um, preface as to what Uh, leads up to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to them because this group of Christians, they were struggling with heresy within the church. They were false teachers who were coming. And just like I said previously, they were pointing to the gift of salvation, but they were saying things about it that weren't true. They were twisting it, they were distorting it, and the Apostle Paul knew that if you see salvation in a way that's unbiblical, then you're going to see God in an unhealthy way, and you're going to see yourself in an unhealthy way as well. And so he writes to the Christians there in Ephesus, and he tells them, he straightens out this heresy, and he tells them what salvation truly says about God and about us. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're not going to read those verses. We're going to just uh, mention them in summary as we go to the heart of what Paul is writing about. But in verses 1 through 3, Paul is basically telling them, we are all born sinners. Now, I don't want to brush by that too quickly. I know that in the, in the church, we are very familiar with this idea of being sinners, that we're born in sin. But for us to truly understand the gift of salvation, I want us to really just pause here for a moment and understand just what Paul is, is telling us about ourselves, that we are all born sinners. In fact, Paul has some really uh, uh, confrontational words that he uses here. He basically says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were, if I could just uh, put it in my own words, we were addicted to sin. We were born addicted to rebelling against God. Not only that, but Paul goes on to say in verses 1 through 3 that we were followers of Satan. Now, let that kind of sink in. Imagine someone tells you that you're a follower of Satan, that your allegiance is to Satan. That's what Paul says, that that's where we were before we accepted Christ. Not only that, but he says you were children of wrath. 
Basically what that means is the moment we were born, the moment we drew breath, we were under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Not because of anything that we had done, because again, we, were, we had just been born. We haven't done anything, but it's because of who we are. It's because of the sin that we had inherited from our parents and their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, some of us may be sitting here or maybe you're listening and, and thinking, that sounds incredibly unfair that we were already destined for hell, followers of Satan, children of wrath from the moment that we were born, even though we hadn't done a single thing, it's because of what someone else did, that now that's true of me and you? That does not seem fair at all. To which I would say, absolutely correct. It's not fair. But let me also point your attention to the fact that life is not fair. And let me also draw your attention to the fact that God's grace is not fair, as we're going to see in just a little bit. Just like you didn't do anything to be born a sinner, you also didn't do anything to receive the gift of God. You did not do anything for God to decide to step down into this world and pay for the penalty that you and I deserve. And so, yes, our sinful nature is not fair, but our salvation is not fair either. And that's what's so beautiful about the gift of salvation. It's a gift that we did not deserve. So as Paul is drawing the, the Ephesian Christians to this more biblical idea of salvation, clearing out the heresy that they had been indoctrinated with, I want you to turn your attentions to verse 4 as he really drives home this point and clarifies for them who God is and who they are. In verse 4, after he talks about their sin, he says this. Verse 4 starts this way. But God... I love that. I just want to pause there for a moment. He basically says, here's who we were. We had no hope, no, uh, no chance for a relationship with God. You were going to live this life a few years here on this earth, and then you were going to spend eternity apart from God, but God. But God stepped into our mess, but God stepped into our sin. He took on flesh, and he took on the burden of sin on himself so that we could have hope. Paul says, but God, notice this next part, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Now, I'll pause here for just a moment. As we kind of get into this next little section here, he says, God has saved you. You were dead in your sins, but God stepped into your mess, stepped into your situation, and he saved you. But I want us to be very careful here because here's another, um, another problem that we often have with our idea of this gift of salvation. So often, I know I grew up with this idea that God saved me. That God loves me. God loves Jim so much that he sent his one and only son into the world so that I might be saved. That God loves me and God loves you as individuals. And is that true? Yes, absolutely. But here's something that God has continually over the years that's been opening my eyes and opening my heart to that I think reveals a, a better and clearer glimpse of the gift of salvation. I want you to notice here in the, in the letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesians that he doesn't just talk about the individual. All the times that he talks about God saving us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. Now listen, in our culture, we emphasize the individual. 
We emphasize individual rights. We emphasize individual autonomy where I can do my own thing. But listen, in the kingdom of God, you're my brother or sister in Christ. We are a family. And God has saved us to a family. Listen, in our sin, we were isolated. We were not only separated from God, we were also separated from one another. We were separated because of our, our past, our history, our, our ethnicity, our traditions, our boundaries, whatever it may be. But now, as the people of God, we have no boundaries. There's neither black nor white, rich nor poor, slave or master. There is none of that in the family of God. God has brought us together and given us a new family in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul says this. This is just beautiful. If, if, you, if you can catch this and, and, and make sure this finds a place in your heart, notice what it says here. And when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, there are, um, I always, when I, when I come to a, a verse like this and, and, and verses where it talks about our position in Christ, it always just kind of makes me step back and, and pause for a moment because sometimes we forget this, but if we truly catch a glimpse of what God is saying, it almost takes our breath away. But here God is saying, you were a rebel fighting against God, but God loved you so much as you were fighting against him that he not only saved you from the punishment that that sin would have deserved, but he has now risen you up from the slums, cleaned you up, and you're not just a servant in God's house, but he has, as Paul says here, he has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. Think about that for a moment. Let that really seep in. That right now, all this that Paul has just said is in the past tense. It means that this is true of you right here and now. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, what Paul is saying in this passage is true of you as I speak. That you have been risen up and right now, spiritually speaking, you are seated with Christ on the throne of heaven. That's amazing. That should cause all of us to just take a step back and, and be in wonder and amazement of what God has done in our life. You are seated with Christ. And to drive this home a little bit further, notice how secure we are now in Christ on the throne of heaven. That if God were to, uh, if God wanted to get rid of us, if he wanted to say, you know what, Jim, you've, you've sinned for the last time. I've given you chance after chance after chance. And you still, even in the midst of all that I've done for you, you're still sinning. If God wanted to throw me away, if he wanted to sever ties with me, listen, as a child of God, I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. To get rid of me is to get rid of a part of God, to get rid of Christ. And that is true of every child of God. Listen, you cannot run from God. You cannot fight him away. He has so wanted to unite with you and fellowship with you and in a relationship with you that you cannot sever your relationship with him. Christ is in you. You are in Christ and you are seated in the heavenly places. You are safe. You are secure in Christ. Listen, my kids, they may uh, not listen all the time. They may disobey. They may grow up and not want to have anything to do with me, but guess what? They will always be my kids. I will always love them, and no matter how far they go, I will always love them and always have my doors open for them, no matter what they do. In the same way, that's the way God the Father, the God of this universe, feels towards you as his son 
or his daughter. You are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. This tells us a little bit about salvation, about who God is and about who we are. Salvation reveals that we have been transformed. We are no longer where we once were. Praise God. We, were, we are no longer in our sin. You may sometimes feel like a sinner. You may sometimes feel like you mess up more than you get it right. But what's true of you spiritually is that you are with Christ forever and always. That's only possible because of Christ coming to this earth. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Not because we, we love the season, we love the lights, we love the decorations, we love the nativity story. No, it's all pointing to the reason why he came, and that's the cross. It's all pointing to God loving you so much that he was willing to go to the most extreme measures in order to be with you. That's what salvation reveals about us. But not only that, notice what it goes on to say in verse 7. That in the ages to come, he, talking about God, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now pause there for just a moment. He says this. God is wanting to show all of creation who he is. That's what it talks about whenever the scripture says that God is about his glory and he wants his glory to continue to go forth in all creation. When we were created as people, we were created to be an image bearer of God. We were created to continue to uh, showcase God's glory in all creation. Now we messed up. Adam and Eve messed up. We have messed up. But God is still passionate about revealing to all creation who he is. And one of the ways, now this is amazing, One of the ways that God wants to showcase his glory, maybe the greatest way that God wants to showcase his glory, is in how he lavishes his grace, his kindness, his mercy, and his love on you and me. That he could could say, you know what, I just want to showcase my justice. But that's not all of God. He could say, I want to showcase my holiness. But that's not all of God. He wanted all of creation, all, all that he had made to see every aspect of him. And one of the aspects that can only be shown is mercy and his love is through redeeming lost sinners. That he said, I, there's no way that they'll understand just how loving I am, just how merciful I am, just how gracious I am, unless I reach to the lowest sinner and save them. Have you ever thought that Adam and Eve, even though they walked in the garden with God, even though they, they were perfect, this is before sin, and they got to see God face to face, walk with him, talk with him, in the cool of the evening in the garden, how wonderful that would be. But did you know that you understand more about God now, after the cross, than Adam and Eve did there in the garden? Do you understand that you see a side of God's love, his mercy, and his grace that Adam and Eve couldn't even fathom before the fall. That God, through our, our fallen sinful tendencies, God has showcased his love, his mercy, and his grace in a beautiful way. Now, that's not to say God wanted us to sin and this was all a part of God's plan. God wanted us to, to fall into sin and rebel against him. No, but he uses our brokenness. He can use the messed up, ugly things of this world to do something beautiful and something wonderful. And that's what God is doing in me and in you that he wants to show all of creation how much 
He is love, how much he is mercy, and how much he is grace by pouring his love, mercy, and grace on you and on me. It says that in the ages to come that he's going to showcase his uh, kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Whenever I see that, the image that I can't help but visualize is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That when we are finally, when Christ comes back and he, re- he claims his bride and he ushers us into the home that he has built for us, that we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's this idea of the bridegroom finally coming and claiming his bride and having the wedding of the century. And I've said this again because I've said this time and time again. I'm sorry if I keep repeating myself, but, but it's just a powerful image that when you go to a wedding, who does everyone focus on? Anyone know? The bride. But who is the bride in this, in this thing we call the gospel? The church. Imagine that for for a moment, that when we are ushered into this final celebration where we are finally at home with God, instead of all the attention going on the bridegroom, which is Christ, he's going to point at the bride and say, no, 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 all the attention goes on her. He's going to be pointing to you and to me. He's going to say, I want all of you, all the angels, I want you to look at her. I want, yes, she was broken. Yes, she was filthy. Yes, she had run away from me. But look how I have cleaned her up. Look how I have redeemed her. Look how I have saved her. I want you to look at her because when you look at her, it tells you a little bit of something about me. It tells you how much I love her, how much I value her. That is what this gift of salvation says about us. It's what it says about God as well. And then it gets into this verse here, about uh, verse 8. You, many of you have heard this verse before. You've quoted this verse. But I want you, hopefully, to hear it again for the first time with new uh, eyes, with fresh ears. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. Now pause there for just a moment. Here Paul is again emphasizing, making it abundantly clear, no mistakes, that what God is doing in this world, what God is doing through you, what God is doing through me, is an act of grace. You see, mercy is when someone is guilty and you withhold the punishment that they deserve. A merciful king sees a prisoner who has tried to usurp his throne, and instead of throwing him in prison, instead of executing him or banishing him, he shows mercy by withholding the punishment. And that would be good enough. That that would be more than we deserve if God said, you know what, you deserve eternity in hell. But I'm not going to do that for you. I'm going to withhold that punishment, and you can be one of my lowly servants in heaven. That would be mercy. But God goes even a step further than that. Grace goes beyond mercy. And grace says, not only am I going to withhold the punishment from you, but I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. Not only am I going to not punish you the way you deserve, but I'm going to heap upon you riches. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You're no longer a rebellious servant that has been restored. You are now a child of the king. Everything that belonged to Christ, the true obedient son, now also belongs to you as well. That when all is said and done, when God restores all of this creation that we have broken, he will then hand it back to us. And he'll say, enter into your kingdom. 
That's amazing. Why would God entrust anything to us again? Why would God give us anything other than judgment? Well, because he's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He wants a relationship with you and with me. And more importantly, he wants a relationship with us as his children to gather in his home and spend time with him. That's the kind of God Paul is talking about here, and he says, this is nothing that you can do. You can't earn this. You can't do enough good deeds to get this. This is purely a grace-based gift so that no one can boast, so that all attention goes to God. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this idea, this word uh, that is said of workmanship, it's the idea of uh, a craft that you are working on. It could be a painting that you're painting. It could be uh, a sculpture that you're carving and you're pouring your time, your energy, and your creativity into. But it is this work of art that you are spending uh, all your time and all your efforts into so that you can then show the world what you've created. And he says that you and me, And more importantly, us together as the people of God, as God's church, we are his workmanship. We are his work of art. And he says that it's not a work of art that you sit on a pedestal or you hang in a museum and you just stand there and look at, but it's better than that. It's a work of art that is functional. You know, it's amazing when you look at uh, some of the, the things that are created today, that uh, homes and the way that architecture is done today, not only is it beautiful, but it's functional. You look at clothes and there, there are just beautiful clothes, wonderful fabrics and, and stuff like that. And not only is it beautiful, but it's functional. It serves a purpose. Well, here's what I want you to understand. When we truly accurately understand salvation, we see what it says about God. And then we also see what it says about us. We see that we're not just saved to sit around and wait until Christ comes back. Paul says here that you are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should live in them. So what are those good works? Well, the good works that God has created me for may look very different from the works that God's created you for. God has given you a history. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. But it's all a part of your story and what makes you, you. God's given you certain gifts. He's given you certain talents that make you, you, and make you a unique contribution to God's workmanship. Some of you have, have, we all have various personalities, different interests and likes and, and ways of looking at the world. They are all unique aspects of God's creation in you. And so there are things that you can do that I'll never be able to do. There are people that you'll be able to reach that I'll never be able to reach. And as we all come together realizing that we serve an incredibly gracious, loving Heavenly Father who has called us to partner with Him in redeeming all of creation, and that you have a unique part to play in that. God's salvation, His wonderful gift, has, has revealed a purpose, a significance, has given your life, your time here on this earth, value. One of the most sad and, and disappointing things is when 
people waste time. You can waste money and get it back. You can break things or waste things and get them back or restore them and repair them. You can't get back time. And God wants you to redeem the time. Use the time that he's given you here and now for his glory to partner with him. I don't know what that looks like for you. I can't speak into your life and tell you, okay, here's exactly what God wants you to do. You're only going to know what your purpose is, what your piece of God's puzzle is for your life and for his kingdom as you spend time with your heavenly father, as you fellowship with him. God wants to teach you. God wants to work in you. God is doing something with your life for his glory. The question is, are you going to partner with that? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to accept this gift and truly understand what a wonderful, gracious gift it actually is? You know, I was uh, reading, I, I love history. I love uh, 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 many of the Christian uh, brothers and sisters in Christ throughout uh, the, the um, church history and, and some of the things they've done for Christ. And one of the individual that is really uh, astounding, just his story and what he was able to accomplish, is William Booth. Many of you know him as the founder of the Salvation Army. He has an incredible testimony. If you ever get a chance to read his story, I encourage you to do so. But there was one story in particular that really sticks out to me about his life. He he ministered uh, in England, and he, he did an incredible work amongst a really hard, sinful, rebellious people. One of the things that were really difficult in his lifetime that he uh, spent a lot of time, he had a burden for, uh, were many of the um, pubs, saloons, and uh, uh, drinking houses of his day. And so he ministered in some of the worst places you can imagine. Many times he would be beaten. Uh, he would be ridiculed. Uh, he would just suffered some incredible abuse. But he had such a burden. God had given him the, the, the talent, the personality, and just the burden that he could not shake to go and minister to that group of people. So much so that at one time he took his young son, who was at this time maybe 12 or 13, into one of these bars. And as they went into the bar, they heard language like you'd never heard before. They saw all kinds of uh, uh, sinful living, uh, women doing depraved things, men just talking, and just, just horrible things going on all around him. And his son was just aghast as he looked around at the people that his father would minister to. And William Booth looked at his son and he said, I want you to get a good, clear look at these people. These are the people that God has called us to minister to. These are the people that are far from God that God has given me and I pray that God has given you a burden for. And he encouraged his son to look on the sinfulness of the people around him and to have his heart broken so that he too would be the next generation to continue that legacy of ministering to the lost. Now, is that to say that that's what you should do, that you should go out to the, the hardest and the most sinful people in our community and minister to them? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is God wants you to take this beautiful, beautiful gift of salvation that you've enjoyed, that you are currently experiencing, and then he's asking you, where's your burden? Where's your ministry? Where's your, where, where's your field that is white under harvest? And go and be that workmanship that he has created you to be, to walk 
in that good work. That's what Christmas is all about. Are the gifts wonderful? Yes. I love getting gifts. I love giving gifts. One of the greatest uh, things that I, I've learned over the years is that as much as it's nice to receive a gift, it's so wonderful to give someone else a gift. I love giving my kids gifts and see their eyes light up. I love giving other people gifts and letting them know how much I love and appreciate them. But the greatest gift you'll ever give someone else is telling them about Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift. And I know it's scary. I know sometimes it's hard. I know sometimes you'll have people push back against it. But if you will just partner with God in doing the work he has created and called you to, sharing the most wonderful gift that humankind has ever received, if you'll partner with him, I promise you, it will be the most wonderful thing you'll ever experience. Apart from accepting Christ, the thing that I love the most, the thing that I'll never forget, is the first person I ever shared Christ with who accepted. I, I, I haven't talked to this individual in, in, in years. I haven't seen them in, in probably, probably almost a decade. But I can still remember vividly the moment I shared Christ with another individual and they accepted. Don't cheat yourself out of giving the greatest gift and watching someone's eternal life transform. That's what God did for you, and that's what now he's inviting you to do for someone else. Maybe it's writing a card. Maybe it's uh, giving someone a call. Maybe, who knows what it could be, but you can use your creativity to share the gospel with someone else. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is an opportunity for you to do one of two things. And here's what I want you to do. For some of you, I want you to just worship God in this moment. In this time of invitation, I want you to just thank him for this awesome gift of salvation that we see that Paul is talking about. Thank him for who he is, that he's the kind of God that would love you this way. And then for some of you, the second thing I want you to consider doing is praying for God to specifically reveal who he wants you to pass that gift along to. Who's that person? It could be a friend, a family member, a neighbor. Who is it? that you can share this gift of salvation with. They may not accept it, but who could you offer it to? And wait to see who God may lay upon your heart. So as we go into this time of invitation, this is your opportunity to talk with your Heavenly Father. Let me pray with you as we close out this part of our service. Wonderful Heavenly Father, Lord, you are amazing. Lord, as we look at this passage and as we see your goodness and your grace, Lord, as we see just how amazing this gift is, Lord, I pray it would truly humble us. Lord, I pray that we would see you clearly in this passage, see you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves. And Lord, I pray that we would see the purpose that you've called us to. Lord, here in, this, in our midst, Lord, I pray that there would be those who would just worship you in spirit and truth and just love you in this time. Lord, I pray that there would be those who would ask you to lay upon their hearts a burden for someone, someone that they could share the gospel with. And Lord, I pray that you would go ahead and begin working on those individuals, soften their heart to receive the gospel, and Lord, be glorified as people are ushered into your kingdom. Lord, we give you this time. Lord, have your way and your will in it. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. As we